This morning we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This morning we will look at the first three verses in a few minutes. I've entitled my discourse to you, Counterfeit Spiritual Gifts. This is a very important topic. It's one that unfortunately is controversial and unnecessarily so because Scripture is very clear on these issues. But the Apostle Paul now is going to address this head on because it was a huge problem in the early church. You will recall that having addressed the abuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, he is now going to address the abuse of spiritual gifts here in verses, or actually in chapter 12 through verse 14, or chapter 14. And this is a problem, again, that has plagued uh, the, the church down through many, many years. We see some of the abuses in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movements in particular. And some of you have come out of those backgrounds. I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, you know some of the problems. You were a part of it for a while. And Paul had learned about the problems associated with spiritual gifts from some of the members in the church, including Chloe's people, as we see in chapter 1, verse 11, and from, quote, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Archaicus uh, in chapter 16 and verse 17. And so he is now going to deal with these misunderstandings and these uh, abuses in chapters 12 through 14. So let me read the text to you. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. This is a fascinating way that he introduces this whole section of Scripture. And I'm going to come back in a minute and explain clearly what he's saying here. But there's much that needs to be said to get you to understand theologically and historically what's going on. Because when you do, I think it'll make it very clear what the Spirit of God would have us to understand in this whole section of Scripture. First of all, folks, you must understand that Satan is a master counterfeiter. He is absolutely brilliant at imitating that which is true with that which is false. He targets things that are valuable. I mean, after all, no one would counterfeit something that's worthless, right? So because spiritual gifts are so valuable to the church and God's kingdom purposes, Satan's going to do all he can to offer a clever imitation. His forgeries came originally, and they still do, primarily through phony manifestations designed to draw attention to those who claim they had these special gifts. And this should be no surprise because Paul has already rebuked the saints in Corinth for their arrogance, for their elitism, for their divisiveness. On multiple occasions, he's done this. 
And then, as today, the more dramatic, even bizarre, the manifestation or the religious experience, the more coveted the supposed gift. This, of course, plays well with man's self-centered, inflated ego, especially among emotional, gullible, self-promoting thrill-seekers, people who are desperate for affirmation, desperate for attention. And then you add to all of this the tremendous power of suggestion that can make human beings believe and do just about anything. And you end up with charismatic chaos in Corinth. But discerning saints that were there could see through all of this. They realized that Christ and his word was not being exalted and instead man's experiences really rule the day. And instead of people seeking after Christ through all of this, they were seeking after showy gifts and their own affirmation, especially with respect to the gift of tongues. Plus, the more discerning saints recognized the undeniable parallels between what they were witnessing in the church and what they knew was going on in their culture with the mystery religions that were so prevalent in that day. So bottom line, what's happening here is Satan is counterfeiting the supernatural endowments that the Spirit of God gives to saints for the purpose of ministering his word and putting the glory of Christ on display. But rather than ministering to the saints, the counterfeit gifts were dividing the saints, weakening the church, And instead of putting the glory of Christ on display, it was putting the glory of man on display. And it placed an undue emphasis on the Holy Spirit rather than on Christ. And I'm going to elaborate upon this more later. Now, some important background. Central to understanding what was going on in Corinth, and frankly, what continues to happen in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movements today you must understand Satan's power to counterfeit what God deems true and important. In fact, Martin Luther once said, Diabolos est simi dei. It means the devil is God's ape. For example, just as there is a holy trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Satan offers his own version consisting of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, as we read about, especially in the book of Revelation. In fact, during the seven years prior to Christ's second coming, Satan will endeavor to establish his rule upon the earth and create a facsimile of the messianic kingdom. And even as there exists today the one true church, the bride of Christ, we see Satan coming up with his own false church, what the scripture calls the great whore, an apostate ecclesiastical monstrosity, an enormous amalgam of apostate religions that will be led by the false prophet eventually and will deceive the world. It's called in Revelation 17, 5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. John went on to describe it in verse 6 as, quote, a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. 
Mystery Babylon to come is called the mother of harlots. She's not just called a harlot. She's called the mother of harlots, the one that originally spawned the blasphemous idolatries that will characterize the final mystery Babylon before Christ returns. The final world religion will be thoroughly demonic. It will be irresistible to sinful man. It will be vile. It will be blasphemous. The Lord describes Babylon's sins in Revelation 18, verse 5, being piled up as high as heaven. So, folks, this will be the unholy counterpart to the bride of Christ. Now, let me take you back to the very beginning. Brief historical background is in order. 1,656 years after God created Adam, he judged man with a worldwide flood. Everyone except eight people who, quote, found favor in the eyes of the Lord, which was Noah and his wife and three sons and wives, all of them were destroyed. And we know according to Genesis 10, verses 8 and 10, that one of the descendants of Ham was a man named Nimrod. And he tried to build, quote, a kingdom called Babel, which, by the way, is the Hebrew form of the name Babylon. And he did this in the land of Shinar, Genesis 10.10. By the way, that's what we would call Iraq today. That was where the original Garden of Eden would have been, in the Iraq all the way down to Kuwait, all of that area, the land of Mesopotamia. And according to Genesis 11 and verse 1, we read that the whole earth used the same language and same words. In other words, they all spoke the same language, the language of Noah. And in verse 2, we read that they journeyed east to the land of Shinar and they settled there. So 100 years after the flood, we're going to see Satan begin to establish his own earthly kingdom through Nimrod, Noah's great-grandson. And this, of course, will be a foreshadow of the coming Antichrist. It's fascinating that this all happened originally between the Tigris and the Euphrates River area. It's where the first battles on earth were fought between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Later on, this will be the area of, of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar built that magnificent city. That was the cradle of civilization. That's where all of the problems began in the middle, of e middle East, and that's where they will all ultimately end. And this remains to be the most hostile region in the world in its vicious hatred of God's covenant people, Israel, as well as the church. Well, we learn more about the motivation of the people in Genesis 11 and verse 4. There we read, and they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And of course, this was commonly called the, the Tower of Babel. It was a ziggurat or a stage tower erected to facilitate various forms of idolatry and History reveals that they had the sign of the zodiac on the top, and there were other ziggurats that were built, not just that one. Their priests would chart the stars to be able to somehow determine the future. And by the way, it should be no surprise that 
We still have this satanic practice today. It's typically in our newspapers. Another ploy to distract people from worshiping the one true God. Well, God was displeased with their rebellion and idolatry, knowing that it was ultimately satanic. So according to verse 7, we read what God says. Come, let us, referring to the triune Godhead, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. So what you have now are the people are confused, and they begin to coalesce around people that are speaking their own language. And so they began to move into different directions around the ancient world, But naturally, they took with them all of the blasphemous idolatries that were a part of that original Babel. And what we discover through ancient history and even through scripture, as I'll show you today, is that at the very core of their religious system was a mother-son fertility god and goddess worship a combination of myth and legend and history all point to the name of one woman in particular. Her name was Samaramis, and she was thought to be the wife of Nimrod. She was the high priestess of the Babel religion. She was the mother of all mystery religions. She was the deity of, of sexual love and fertility. The goddess Samaramis became Ishtar of Syria, Astarte of Phoenicia, Isis of Egypt, Aphrodite of Greece, and Venus of Rome. And according to the cult of Ishtar, Semiramis was impregnated by a sunbeam that came in through the window and touched her womb, causing her to conceive a son by the name of Tammuz. And of course, there you have a counterfeit version of the virgin birth of Christ. The earliest known mention of Tammuz is in text that dates back to the early dynastic um, third period, like around 2600 BC, but the cult is probably much older than that. The name Tammuz seems to have been derived from the Akkadian form Tammuzi, based on the early Sumerian Damuzid. Sumerian was the, the, the most ancient language that we can, we can discover. And by the way, that meant the flawless young. Again, a counterfeit of the sinless Savior. So Tammuz, or Sumerian Damuzi, in that Mesopotamian religion, was the god of fertility, embodying the powers for new life in nature in the spring. Now, Tammuz was also deified under various names and was the the consort, or in other words, the spouse of Ishtar the god of the underworld. And there are as many as 180 shrines dedicated to the goddess Ishtar that have been documented in ancient Babylon alone. Well, the idolatrous mother-son fertility cult worship can be seen in virtually all of the pagan religions around the world, even to this day. In Greece, Samaramis became Aphrodite, Artemis, Athena, Demeter and Gaia. And in Rome, she was Venus, Diana, Minerva, and Terra. 
And Tammuz corresponds with Cupid in Rome, Eros in Greece, Osiris in Egypt, and Baal in Phoenicia. And in India, you have the goddess Devika and her infant Krishna. You also have Isi and the infant Iswara. In Egypt, you have the goddess Isis and son Horus. In Asia, they were known as Sibyl and Dioas. The Scandinavians called her Disa, and she's always pictured with a child. And the ancient Germans even worshipped the virgin Hertha with a child in her arms, and on and on it goes. And in every culture, the ancient Babylonian mother-son fertility cult worship was marked by hypnotic chants and emotional frenzy, drunkenness, and ultimately sexual immorality. Even Israel was later rebuked for worshiping, quote, the queen of heaven, which was the goddess Ishtar. You read about that in Jeremiah 44. And also for worshiping her son Tammuz. You read about that in Ezekiel 8 and verse 14, which included idol worship that involved just the lowest and most abominable forms of sexual immorality. Idolatrous practices that caused God to judge them severely. In fact, the unbiblical celebration of Lent developed from the pagan worship of Samaramis, where she mourned for 40 days over the death of Tammuz uh, just before, guess what? His supernatural resurrection from the dead. You see the counterfeit? Again, a satanic, mythical counterfeit of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you will recall in Ezekiel that when God showed Ezekiel the various forms of idolatry that were going on with Israel, it included the mourning for Tammuz. We read about it in Ezekiel 8 and verse 14. It says, Then God brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north, and behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. You see, he was considered to be the god of spring vegetation. So when the heat of summer would begin to to basically burn out the crops for that season at the end of July, they would long for Tammuz to come back and, and reignite and cause the life to come back in the spring. In fact, the fourth month of the Hebrew calendar is still called Tammuz. And even during that season of mourning, Historical records indicate that when they worshipped Tammuz, that included gross forms of sexual immorality. Without taking time to get into it, the heretical position of baptismal regeneration, where you're born again through, through the rite of water baptism, all of that originated out of these mystery religions, along with self-mutilation, mutilation, uh, flagellation to atone for sins and gain divine favor, uh, the customs of, of pilgrimages and paying for forgiveness of sins for oneself and others. And it sh- should be no surprise that the name Queen of Heaven or Mother of God is still used by Roman Catholics to describe Mary. In fact, any honest student of Roman Catholicism will quickly see that the papacy as well as the Roman Catholic system is far more Babylonish and Jewish than it is Christian. 
And historically, we see that this Babylonish mother of harlots eventually settled in Rome. You will recall with your ancient history that when Constantine conquered Rome in 300 AD, he mixed a perverted form of Christianity in with the poison of Roman paganism, these mystery religions. And during that time, the famous historian Eusebius, a follower of Origen, taught that the church, referring to the Roman Catholic church, was the new Israel, apparently replacing the Jew. In fact, Constantine made it a crime to convert to Judaism. And ultimately, Constantine united the entire Roman Empire with the new Roman Catholic church in an effort to promote loyalty and unity among the citizens. So this mixture of Babylonian uh, paganism, certain aspects of Judaism, and a distorted form of Christianity became the early Roman Catholic Church, the political glue of the Roman, Holy Roman Empire. And of course, all of that included the veneration of Mary, the Holy Mother, the quote, Queen of Heaven. And that is still commonplace in Roman Catholicism. In fact, you can see Mary's statue and, and all over the place, and the, the Pope and and people kneeling before her, playing, praying to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church explains, quote, Mary's role in the church is inseparable from her union with Christ and flows directly from it. It's interesting that the coat of arms of Pope John II bears the letter M, which stands for Mary, and embroidered on the inside of his robe was the Latin phrase, totus tuus sum Maria. Mary, I'm all yours. And the current Pope, Pope Francis, has the eight-pointed star on his coat of arms, which is the long-standing symbol of the Virgin Mary, the Lady, Star of the Sea, which was the ancient title for the Virgin Mary. So because the Vatican City in Rome and the Roman Catholic Church are really Babylonish to the core, it will continue to be a major player in the religious system as things go on, especially eventually as the Antichrist and the false prophet take take power. And it should be no surprise that the Roman Catholic Church is positioning itself to be at the very center of the current move toward globalization. I was reading just the other day, according to the Vatican News, quote, Pope Francis has donated $500,000 to assist migrants in Mexico. So, Babel or Babylon is called, quote, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth in Revelation 17, 5. So she was the parent, shall we say, the satanic parent that, that birthed all of these false relig- religions. And in Revelation 17, the Lord warns that just before he returns, history is going to come full circle. And all these false religious systems will have a family reunion. You might say that they will all come home to mama. They will all be rolled up into one religion, the worship of the beast personified by the harlot. Indeed, folks, the world is being prepared for this great Babylonish whore who promises to bring the world's religions all together so that we will all finally coexist, right? You see that blasphemous bumper sticker on cars these days. And it will all come together under uh, a monolithic banner of ecumenism 
a demonic system that will eventually lead to the soul worship of the beast himself. By the way, this is all what's going on in the, the minds of the apostles as they're writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the scripture. For example, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, we read Paul saying, and, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And here's why. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He's referring to Satan there as the God of this world. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, with that quick overview of a lot of ancient history, the question is, well, how did all of this impact the early church, especially here in Corinth? Well, here's the answer. Various forms of these mystery religious religions flourished in the ancient Greco-Roman culture, including these satanic counterfeits of mother-son fertility cult worship. In fact, the temple of Aphrodite on, on the Acropolis there in Corinth had a thousand priest, priestesses who practiced religious ritual prostitution. Drunken orgies were just a part of their worship. That's what goes on all the time in their culture, or what went on all the time in that culture in that day. And they believed in what was called sexual ecstasia. Ecstasia. We get our word ecstasy from that. And what would happen with ecstasia is they would get worked up into an emotional frenzy through hypnotic chants and, and ceremonies until they finally arrived at a semi-conscious euphoric feeling of oneness with the god or the goddess that they worshiped. And we see variations of this same type of thing in, in uh, other mystery religions like the, the mantra meditation and trance of certain kinds of Hindu uh, yoga, for example, that marks, makes a person even insensitive to pain, as well as the Buddhists who seek to escape into the the divine nothingness of nirvana. Sometimes I wish I could do that, don't you? But back to ecstasia, uh, through the use of, of trance-inducing, the trance-inducing power of a combination of things like alcohol and whirling dances, there's carvings of this, the whirling dances and fragrant incense, with all of that going on, what would happen with the people in, in this state of, of, of ecstasy is they would lose all of their inhibitions. All of their social and moral constraints would be removed as they worshipped their god and goddess. And they would, they would fix their minds, their attention on sacred, sacred objects. And they would eventually get to a place where they had like an out-of-body trance. And, and it would end up in an unrestrained sexual orgy. That's how they worshipped. Imagine living in that kind of a background. Now, if you were to go to modern Lebanon today, you could see the magnificent ruins of Baalbek. Um, and there you can see this massive Roman temple uh, to Bacchus, who was also known as uh, Dionysus, uh, the Roman god of wine. And there you can see carvings that depict all of these kinds of things. And you can see it in other places as well. By the way, this is why Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, do just the opposite of what you've been doing. Now, you can witness similar things in other forms of pagan worship around the world today, including certainly charismatic and Pentecostal worship. I've been in those situations before. I'm sure some of you have. I know some of you have come out of that. And most people who are vulnerable to the power of suggestion um, will fall into this type of thing. People that anticipate that something spiritual, something supernatural is going to happen. And all of a sudden the preacher gets to dancing around and his voice gets up like this and everybody gets excited. And before you know it, the hands start waving and the music comes up and everybody's getting in the mood. And then all of a sudden you'll see some woman jumping up and down. And people start running around. And then you start hearing them saying all this stuff. Woulda, shoulda, coulda bought a Yamaha. Woulda, shoulda, coulda bought a Yamaha. And all of this. And before you know it, the whole place is in chaos. It's absolute pandemonium. And I mean, we laugh at this, but folks, it's, it's pitiful. Because none of this is going to bring honor to Christ. That's the type of thing that was going on in Corinth. It was mass hysteria. People were making fools out of themselves. And you see that to this day. People dancing in the spirit. I've seen it. I've seen people hopping in the spirit. I've seen people laughing in the spirit. I haven't seen this personally, but I've heard of people barking in the spirit and even barfing in the spirit. Just insane stuff. Counterfeit of Pentecost. And the Spirit's work in the nascent church, the early church. And, and it's this kind of altered, altered state of consciousness that false teachers in the first century would use to begin to really ply their trade as they do today. I mean, you can get people to believe and do just about anything. As a footnote, the charismatic movement today is absolutely obsessed with the Holy Spirit, not with Christ. It exalts the spirit more than Christ. Think of the glorious priority of the Holy Spirit. His role is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And in chapter 16 and verse 14, he will glorify me and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, back to this Babylonish mystery religion in the first century. From them also emerged another form of, of ecstasia. It was called enthusiasmos. And we got our word enthusiasm from that. It's real obvious. And this involved frenzied formulas and foretelling and divination, revelatory dreams and visions. I mean, these were the original God told me this people. All right. And this is commonplace in many pagan religions. And, and so all of this was created now by Satan. And as, what, as we're going to see in 1 Corinthians, these really became... 
the distinguishing marks of the church. And some of the people in the church are pulling their hair out, thinking there's something wrong here. And there are people today in those circles that are pulling their hair out, saying there is something wrong here. As I was thinking about this, my mind went to 2 Peter 2, beginning in 1, verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. By the way, this was already happening in Corinth. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Now, back to Corinth specifically. Remember now, the Corinthian believers were heavily influenced by these Babylonish mystery religions and their idolatrous culture. And they were used to seeing demonically controlled uh, diviners and, and soothsayers perform supernatural works by the power of demons that would authenticate their claims that they were representing certain gods or goddesses. They were used to seeing this. And you will recall that because they were what Paul called babes in Christ, because they were still fleshy, they were carnal, they were so influenced by the world, they were therefore very gullible. They were self-centered people. They were divisive. They were looking for a thrill. And by the way, Satan will always deliver. When you long for the wrong thing, he will give it to you and give it to you in abundance. So they were spiritually immature. They lacked spiritual discernment. So anything that smacked of the supernatural, they just automatically assumed that was of God. And many Christians today are no different. So knowing this, the father of lies comes along and he provides false teachers, false apostles. They're already being, being groomed, shall we say, in that early church and in many other churches. And he raises them up within the church. And very quickly, they begin to oppose Paul and the other apostles. And they deny the authority of Scripture and so forth. And that's what we have today. Folks, it's like introducing the Ebola virus into a community. What Satan did is he introduced his own version of ecstasia and enthusiasmos into the early church. It was like a virus. It was just tearing it apart. He counterfeited the supernatural gifts that the Holy Spirit of God gives to saints. And that counterfeit caused confusion. It caused disunity and division within the church. And to distract them from God's revelation and cause them to believe the revelation of man he gives them these revelatory dreams and, and these visions. And people are telling other people that God told me this and God told me that. And unfortunately, he caused them to become spirit-centered rather than Christ-centered. Well, obviously, some of the more mature discerning saints could see through this. So they seek the Apostle Paul's guidance. And so he answers them here. And he says in verse 1, now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. It could be translated ignorant. Obviously, many of them were ignorant. And what's really interesting is they 
they were rich and complete in all of the gifts. Chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that. But they had an improper understanding of them. And so they were abusing them. They were making up their own version, for example, of the gift of tongues. They, they had impure motives, selfish motives. They wanted to draw attention to themselves. They wanted to make themselves look more spiritual than others. And as we will see, the gift of tongues, or literally the gift of languages, was the special capability to speak a foreign language that had not been learned by an individual. But instead, they practiced what's called glossolalia. Uh, I gave you a little example of it a, a minute ago, a counterfeit of the true gift. And, and this is practiced today all over the world, not just in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, but you'll see it in lots of other pagan religions. You even see it in various forms of Mormonism and other cults. And glossolalia consists of, of unintelligible stammering, ecstatic gibberish using nonsense syllables. Not at all the New Testament gift that involved the supernatural ability to be able to speak precisely in a genuine, meaningful, translatable foreign language that you had never learned. And to do so for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and edifying the saints who understood those languages. Well, Paul knows that the proper understanding and use of spiritual gifts is so important because without that, the church can just be devastated. John MacArthur says, quote, spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry, characteristics of Jesus Christ that are to be manifested through the body corporate, just as they were manifested through the body incarnate. Each gift the Holy Spirit now gives to believers had its perfect expression in Jesus' own life and ministry. His church continues to live out his life on earth through the power of his spirit working through his gifted people. Well, Paul wanted them to understand all of this. So he's prepared now to teach them about these God-given endowments for Christian service that we're going to see as we go on in our study over the next several weeks. He's going to answer questions like, what are spiritual gifts and what is their purpose how can we identify them? How many are there? Does every believer have one or two or many? He's going to answer questions like, what's the difference between a spiritual gift and a natural talent? How important are they for Christian living and ministry in the church? How can we use them properly? He's going to help us understand how, how to identify satanic counterfeit gifts He's going to answer a question like, what are the dangers of misusing gifts and or allowing counterfeit gifts to exist within the church? And he's especially going to spend a great deal of time helping us understand the nature, the purpose, and the duration of the gift of tongues. He's going to help us see the role of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And how does that relate to spiritual gifts? He's going to answer the question, are all of the gifts intended to be operative throughout the church age or are some of them only temporary and no longer operating in the church? Well, back to our text, verse 2. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray. Led astray, apago in the original language. Uh, it, it carries the idea of being deceived or misled 
but it was also used in the context of, of, of a prisoner being taken under armed guard to prison or to execution. For example, in Mark 4, we read how Judas told the religious leaders who wanted to capture Jesus in verse 43, whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him, and here it is, lead him away under guard. So again, back to the text, you know that you were, when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. In other words, these voiceless idols, they're unable to say anything. They're unable to help you with anything. And yet you're, you're captured by them. However you were led. And we know that the unregenerate are constantly being led astray by the lust of the flesh, by the satanic world system, by false religions, counterfeit Christianity. We know according to Romans 6 and verse 17 that we're, the, the unbelievers are slaves to sin. According to Titus 3 and verse 3, unbelievers are called foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, and so on. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, that they live in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. We all know people today, maybe this is some of you, in absolute bondage to your materialism. That's why you're hopelessly in debt, having spent way more than you could possibly pay back. People that are in bondage to sexual immorality, they can't live without their drugs, without their alcohol. They're in bondage to false religions, to political ideology. I know so many people that are in absolute bondage to social media to entertainment, and on and on it goes. This can happen to believers as well, people that are ignorant of the truth or they rebel against it. And some of the believers in Corinth were therefore snookered about spiritual gifts. They had been like the pagans that were led astray to the mute idols. And some of them were so undiscerning that they couldn't distinguish the true from the false. And no doubt there were unbelievers among them as well that were being influenced by Satan to do his mischief. Therefore, verse 3, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. The term anathema, a severe condemnation. You know, if you're of the Spirit of God, you're not going to say that. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is unbelievable when you think about it. Some of the people in the church were saying that they were speaking in the Spirit, but what they were actually saying in their teaching, in their revelations, whatever they were saying, it was actually condemning the one that they're supposed to be exalting. Incomprehensible. Well, how could this happen? Folks, I'll tell you, you get people worked up in an emotional frenzy with ecstasia and enthusiasmos, and they will say and believe just about anything. You go into some of these services, some of you have been there. It's absolute bedlam. So Paul is saying you've got to be doctrinally discerning. And of course, that is the hallmark of these religious groups that abuse the spiritual gifts and focus primarily on the works of the Spirit. 
Their truth claims are validated by subjective experience rather than objective truth. It's all about emotion, not about exegesis. It's all about, well, God told me this rather than God says in his word. A big difference. Now, perhaps some of the, the, the Gentiles in the church were influenced by the, uh, the Greek philosophy of dualism. Remember, matter is bad. Physical things are bad. But spiritual things are good. And that eventually develops into Gnosticism. So, for example, they denied that Jesus could be really God incarnate because God, who is spirit, would never want to become flesh because physical things are evil. And they argued that Christ only appeared to be in the flesh, that Christ's spirit just descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but he returned to heaven before the crucifixion. All of these crazy Gnostic beliefs that, that just, just brought all kinds of chaos into the church. They believed that Jesus died in a cursed death like any other human being. They denied the resurrection, especially the idea of after a resurrection, the spirit being reunited once again with a body. That was incomprehensible to them. So some of them were probably teaching against that. And some of the Jews that were in the church that had perhaps come to Christ, Maybe they hadn't, but some of them were aware of Deuteronomy 21, 23 that says that any man who is, who is hanged on a tree is, is accursed. So maybe they were teaching things along that line. We don't know. But we do know that these were the kinds of heresies that were being proclaimed within the church under the guise of the Spirit of God is working through me. And people were buying some of this stuff. For this reason, later on in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 3, Paul said this, But I'm afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So the opposite of saying Jesus is a curse is to say Jesus is Lord. Notice at the end of verse 3, he says, And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now here Paul is referring to someone who's doing more than just speaking the phrase here. He's referring to someone who's saying Jesus is Lord and his life can validate that claim. Jesus is Lord. Curios. It's the idea that he is God, very God. But the term also implies sovereign authority and a willingness to commit joyfully to that sovereign rule in your life. And so he's saying that no one can say this except by the Holy Spirit. And so when somebody says that and you see that manifested in their life that validates that truth claim, you know that's the work of the Spirit. You people have to be discerning here. By the way, not everyone who calls Jesus Lord submits to his Lordship, right? Jesus made that very clear. Remember Luke 6.46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's one thing to give lip service to the Lordship of Christ. It's another thing 
to obey him. Genuine faith, by the way, will always produce joyful, faithful obedience. He said in that same passage in verse 44 that a tree is known by its fruit. All right? You say you're an apple tree, let me see your apples. You say you're a grape tree, let's see the grapes. That's the idea. Matthew, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So what validates genuine saving faith is not just a profession of faith. It's the fruit in a person's life that manifests the reality that they've truly been born again. The old things have passed away. They've become a new creature in Christ. They are now being led by the Spirit. They love the Word of God. They love the Lord. They want to live for His glory. They have a burden for the lost. And on and on it goes. And when that happens, that's a person that is truly being led by the Spirit. So he's saying to them right off the bat, you guys have got to get some discernment here. You've got to have doctrinal, spiritual discernment. So never just believe anyone who, first of all, denies Jesus is Lord. You know, whenever you see a person denying that in something that they're teaching, that they're presenting some alternate Jesus, that's not of the Spirit. It's the great work of the Spirit to point men to Christ. It's the great work of the Spirit to cause them to be born again. It's the great work of the Spirit to cause a person to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. Everything else is a counterfeit. Well, this is an introduction to where we're going to go in the days to come. So, folks, can I challenge you to begin this journey with me as we look at spiritual gifts. Begin this by examining your own heart and saying, are, are there areas in my life... I like to use the word snookered. Are you familiar with that word, or is that just one of these corny cowboy words that I come up with? You've been deceived. It's so easy to be deceived in this culture. Well, I, I read it on the Internet. Oh, boy, that settles it, right? Well, well, that's not what my mama taught me. You know what? Maybe your mama was wrong. Well, that's not what old brother so-and-so said. Well, he could have been wrong. What's important is what does God say? And, and we want to examine what we believe under the light of Scripture. So may I ask you to really examine your life under the truth of Scripture. The only way you'll know a good counterfeit is to know what the real thing is, right? You see them looking at the bills. I don't know what they're looking at. You give somebody a $100 bill, which very seldom happens for me, but, but when you give somebody a $100 bill, they put it up to the light. They're looking for something there. That's what we have to do. When we see things and hear things, and there's all kinds of stuff out there, satanic counterfeits, we've got to know the real thing so well that we go, there's something not right about that. Something not right about that person. So you want to ask yourself, does the Bible really support my beliefs? Or have I been snookered by some religious counterfeit? You want to ask yourself, does my life really exalt Christ? Or am I really trying to exalt myself? These were the kinds of dangers in the early church. And you know what? We're going to see some of those saints someday in glory. And we're going to realize even more that we're no different than them. 
the culture was different, but we still have the same sin problems. So let's rejoice that God is a saving, redeeming, sanctifying God. Otherwise, we would all be snookered to the point we wouldn't know what to do, would we? We're just dumb sheep, but we're dumb sheep that have been saved by grace and empowered by the Spirit, and he's given us his word. And that's how we can discern the truth. Amen? So let's rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. I pray that, that somehow as we begin to wrestle with the ancient culture that you will help us to see the same deceptions manifested, not just in our culture, but also, Lord, even in our own hearts and minds. So I pray that this will be a, a great opportunity to understand more fully the, 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 the boundless blessings associated with these spirit-empowered gifts that you have given to each believer for the purpose of putting Christ's glory on display and causing us to become more like him. And Lord, if there be one here today that really knows nothing of what it is to be in fellowship with the living God through faith in Christ, I pray that somehow, by the power of your spirit, you will so overwhelm them with the horror of their sin and the inevitable consequences that will come, that they will run to the foot of the cross and cry out to you, for salvation. We pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.